What tool do you end up using the most for your data-related work? This is going to be a complete cop-out because it really depends on the customer. So <laughs> I'm afraid. <laughs> and it really, it could be, I mean... Hello and welcome to Infinite Machine Learning. This is your host, Pratik Joshi. In each episode of this podcast, we talk to an amazing machine learning practitioner and dive deep into a specific topic. We have John Cook on the show today. He is the founder of Dataception. It's a consulting firm that helps organizations build data and AI solutions to accelerate decision making. He has previously held leadership roles at Databricks, PwC, and Rule Financial. In this episode, we cover a range of topics, including data product pyramid, what's a data product marketplace, data mesh, how business teams should communicate with data teams, and much more. All right, ready for liftoff? And three, and two, and one, let's go. John, thank you so much for joining me today. No problem. It's great to, great to have me on, on the show. Thank you very much. I want to dive straight in. You're the founder of Dataception, and uh, you're pretty active uh, when it comes to talking about data. So first of all, can you tell us what you're building at Dataception and what type of customers do you work with? Sure, sure. So, so Dataception is a is a consultancy um, firm almost, and uh, we do a lot of work around um, sort of data space, very much around sort of data architecture, data science, data engineering, that type of thing. Um, we build um, we build platforms, we do data architect, data system architecture, we do data strategy, um, and we do a lot around data products, which obviously we'll talk about in a, in a bit. But um, yeah, that's that's fundamentally the kind of the, the core of our services. But we are also in the middle of building a, a product, which is hopefully to be launched sometime in the future, really around the data data product space. But obviously, I'll keep you uh, uh, in touch with that. So. Fantastic. Now let's start with the data product pyramid. I mean, you, you talked about it. It's on the it's on the website. It's on your page. So can you explain what data product pyramid is? Sure, sure. So I've been in the data space probably about twenty years. I did a lot of work um, in investment banking, building risk systems, doing data driven systems, market data systems, that type of stuff. Um, I worked a lot of with the risk officers and the traders. <clears throat> and one of the things I found quite often was um, being able to have the, the business people, the very smart business people, be able to articulate requirements to analytics people. They could be either quants, they could be data scientists, they could be data engineering teams, that sort of stuff. You need a lot of translation between the businesses to be able to ask what they want in terms of a requirement and actually the data and technology teams to be able to understand that. And this has progressed throughout my career. I've seen this again and again and again. Um, and really what the data product pyramid is really there to do is first and foremost to provide a language, a sort of lingua franca, if you will, for business people to be able to describe what they want from an analytics perspective so that data and analytics teams can actually understand them. You know, I've been through kind of business requirements documents. I've even been through user journeys. I've been through a whole myriad workflows, that type of thing. Um, and really what it comes down to when business people want something done, they want to ask a lot of high-level questions. And they really want a lot of the heavy lifting to interpretation and stuff to be done by the, the analytics teams and the data engineering teams. And what that what it means is they have to have lots of deep domain expertise. And they all have to have a sort of sixth sense of what the data or the, um, the, uh, the business person's asked for. So really, I, I sort of sat back about you know, 12 months ago and thought, how do we actually get these requirements down? 
And it really struck me that the way the businesses like to talk is all about, you know, what they want to do, what kind of questions they want to ask, what kind of decisions they want to make. So really the data product pyramid was a way of actually constructing that down into a structure to allow that kind of process in a really super simple way. Um, the second thing that was, was there to do is actually one of the things I found, again, in the analytics space is when an art business ask comes in, sometimes you don't know months later if this, if it's feasible, if it's actually doable, the data is correct, all that type of stuff. So one of the things the data product pyramid is there to do is really to try and break down the ask um, into kind of composable, encapsulated kind of small deliveries that you can you can implement, you can show to the business, you can prototype, you can actually iterate around them rather than doing a kind of big bang at 12 months when you need a data platform, we need, we need a, a lot of models, we need a lot of kind of analytics. So the, yeah, the data product pyramid is really trying to break that down um, into those kind of discrete po points because obviously sometimes some of the asks are huge. You know, you're looking at 12 months, almost like a program to actually do this. And the third bit really is to actually build stuff as you go and actually end up with a executable set of components which actually sort of support the business process but actually come out the back of it that you can reuse like metrics, like models, like analytics, like decision products, all that type of stuff. So you end up with almost like this marketplace of, of, of decomposable um, analytics products that actually can be reused for the business pro process but also reused across the whole organization. So really that's, that's kind of what it's, what it's there to do. Right. That's actually a good topic here because a lot of times uh, the business teams and the data teams, there's a bit of a communication gap. Sometimes it, it breaks down. So let's take a, a specific example here. So let's start with, uh, let's say you're a, a B2B SaaS company, right? And you, you're you using data in your day-to-day -day work and there are many, many projects that, that they have to do in terms of data. Now, let's start with a business requirement and how we can translate that business requirement to something that a data team would understand. And so, and then they deliver back the results. So can you kind of uh, illustrate that with an example? Sure, sure. So um, one of my favorite examples, which is something that a lot of people know about, and it's kind of set diagnostic, it's basically marketing, you know, fundamentally, right. you know, we, t we hear a lot about kind of, you know, marketing initiatives around campaigns, around single customer view, around, you know, all that type of things. And one of the things that always comes back to me is like when you when you enter into a marketing campaign, obviously the marketeers are out there will know this a lot better than I will. But you're trying to hit an objective fundamentally. You're trying to do something. So you know you're you're, you're either trying to reduce customer churn, or you're trying to you know do cross sell upsell, or you're trying to do to really understand your customer better from a you know campaign management perspective. So what I would always start with is. What's the specific thing you want to do? So fundamentally, let's take so for instance, you know, a marketing team might want to say, want to reduce customer churn. So we want to basically um, stop customers leaving out, leaving leaving our website, leaving out, yeah, having abandoned baskets, that type of stuff. So I'd go to the marketing team and, and the sales team saying, okay, what decision do you want to make? What's the key thing you want to do? And they might come back and say, we want to, you know, have a um, uh, to be able to have customers that don't actually leave leave the platform or leave leave out our our, our, our e-commerce website. Um, okay, so what do you need to do to make that decision? Then I can start, start breaking it down. So, well, we need to understand, first of all, how many we're losing. You know, we need to understand what their buying behaviors are. We need to understand their segmentation. We need to understand. And, and as you say, you start breaking it down. And each one of those can actually become a product fundamentally. So you start off with a decision product to say, these are the customers that are going to potentially churn, almost like a predictive model. Underneath, you've got a segmentation model. Underneath that, you've got some metrics about this. And, and that's the way the product, the product pyramid works. You break them down. And each one of those is delivers a product. So you might say, actually, 
you want to do customer churn, first you need to understand how many customers you're churning. And you might not even know that. You might not even be able to know that because you might not have the data or it might not be good enough or you might not have the correct, you know, you're not capturing it. So rather than say we want to reduce customer churn and then since six months trying to build models and kind of scrabble around for data, you say, right, let's do the first piece. Let's understand how many customers are churning. Let's just take, let's take that as one little delivery. Let's try and find the data. Let's build it. Let's show it back to the business and say, is this correct? And then you say, oh, that's great. That works. That's the data good enough. Or if it's not good enough, you, you, you haven't wasted a lot of time and money. So if it is good enough, you go to the next one. So, okay, so we understand. Can we, can we model our buying behavior of each of the customers? You know, do, can we do that? Can we do a segmentation? Can we do some attribution? We do, you know, and you start building up this kind of these, each of these little products into this kind of big um, sort of pyramid, but they're all dependent on each other, but not big bang. And each time you go forward, you test it out. And if it can't be done, you then work out what do we need to get it done? And then what, what's the cost and what's the value associated with it? And then until finally you get to the top, here's our decision model for doing customer churn. So that's that kind of, it's almost like a functional decomposition, but from the, almost the bottom up and your prototyping, you're doing feasibility as you go. So it's, um, yeah, you're not doing big bang. And like I said, you're not, you, you know, if you can't achieve it, you're not wasting lots of time, money, and you can, you know, work out what the gap is and how, you know, how you want to fill it. Right. No, that's that's very helpful to understand. I have one quick question about the pyramid before we go to the next topic. Four layers of the pyramid, right? Data services, information products, knowledge products, and decisions, right? At, at the top. It, depending on the company at hand or the or the business at hand, the definition might slightly change. So let's say if you're if you're at a company, where do you draw the line between information products and knowledge products? Uh, and again. Uh, just, just kind of, it's, it'll be helpful to understand. You know, where do you, where do you draw that? Like, does does knowledge mean only when you make a, a prediction or use ML, or an information is is only about converting data into information? So, can you kind of explain that? Sure, sure. I mean, first of all, these aren't hard and fast rules. So, you can't call that an information product. You can't call that a knowledge product. They're really guidelines to to break down the problem. And what you normally start with is basically you start with kind of what the state of your business, that your historical, what's happened, basically. And if you look at the kind of the four, four types of um, metrics, you have prescriptive all the way through to prescriptive, that type of stuff. I'm trying to follow that kind of pattern. So, you, so the, the information really is basically, I'm trying to measure the state of my business, what's happening today, what's happened previously. And you can bet, get that. And most of, the, most of the time, that would just be kind of prescriptive metrics. You know, I'm doing standard SQL type window functions. I'm doing, you know, select um, the uh, the total cost of sales or the total amount of sales or that, that type of stuff. So you're looking at kind of, you look, it's a backward looking view. because That's really what the information product layer. And of course, the data services are really kind of how the data gets to them. So I can build that 20 metrics, 30 metrics, that type of thing. Knowledge products really are around, you know, uh, types of models and types of products that actually tell me things above and beyond what is just what the raw data is doing so again this is a way of just me trying to break down the problem into my head so i'm looking i've got the state of my business um i now want to see you know what's going to happen i got so into a predictive model so for instance i want to know you know in our, in our example you know what are my customers are going to buy what what are the top five products that they actually will buy so that's, that's the forward-looking kind of predictive model i also want to know kind of what it means to me you know, so fundamentally, again, if I'm, you know, if I'm looking at a forward model, these are top 10 products. What does that actually mean from my customer churn perspective? Let's, let's overlay kind of, you know, knowledge graphs, let's overlay extra annotations, all that stuff, stuff to tell me more about what's actually happening. And it's, it's, it's normally things you don't get directly from the data. It's, you know, say you're adding business rules, that type of stuff. So that's really what the knowledge is about. It's kind of adding, you've got the information that tells me what is, you've got the knowledge to tell me what's going to happen and what it means. And then at the very top, you've got to see what, what decision do I need to make? 
So fundamentally, customer churn would be like, I need to change my marketing strategy. I need to change my product line. I need to reduce the, the cost of my fulfillment or stuff like that. So again, the decision was really about, let's say, the, the next stage is about what the, the action I need to perform. And, and typically the models can't get be quite different. So knowledge ones would where you probably see most of things like ML, you know, knowledge graphs, you know, the more advanced analytics, simulation-based work, you look at agent-based modeling or stochastic if you're in banking, that type of stuff. And the decision would be more around kind of rules-based, you know, heuristics, that type of thing. You know. So, you know, I've seen my, I've done my simulation. I've seen what my top five products are. I've seen what the, the, the segments are going to have the likeliest churn. Now, what do I do about it? So you add in business rules into actually to, you know, typically. But again, it's not hard and fast. You could, you could have a machine learning model in all, in all layers, obviously, apart from the data services. Right, right. Now, that, that's helpful to understand. All right, moving on to... Uh, data product marketplace. Now, I know you, you've written about it, but just to set the stage, can you quickly define what it is and also how does it manifest itself in a, in a large company, for example? Sure, sure. So, I mean, I've done a lot of work with, you know, with data catalogs and kind of, you know, data marketplaces or data kind of central, you know, content management systems, that type of stuff. So the idea is the data product marketplace is really doing that, but for data products. And, you know, I define a data product as, as, as not just the data, it's actually the analytics of things, giving the insights. So it would be the metric or it would be the machine learning model or it would be the decision model and that type of stuff. And one of the things that, you know, I've always seen a lot of organizations, especially larger, more complex ones, is once people build something, it's very hard to understand what it is, what decisions it's made, and kind of very hard for me to reuse it. And normally I say, well, I'll, I'm going to go away and rebuild it or redo it because it's too hard to find what's going on so the idea of the data product marketplace is exactly what it sounds it's a, a place where i can go and search for data products so i can find that that recommendation engine or i can find that metric or i can find that dashboard or i can find that you know that, that whole product to, to reuse it and i can click on it and go oh, oh i see i see how it's been built i see what aggregations are in there i can see what data it's being used i can see all the aspects of the product so the data sets the structures the aggregations the models all that type of stuff so again it's more like i say content management for the data products and i've got taxonomy you know, like the amazon marketplace i can do it you know i do a search i can do a browse it's nicely classified into kind of my domains it's you know and it's also got tags in it like there's a machine learning model or that's that's in python as well as <clears throat> business tags saying this is for crm this is for you know marketing this is for the, the business process and stuff like that as well so it's kind of that bringing together all the kind of the, the, the good classification and, and curation of the products, but actually also the products themselves. And there's another aspect to it, and the, the one you know, the, 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 the tool that we're building, you can actually click on the, the particular product and it loads, loads it up. So if it's a dashboard, it'll fire up Tableau, or if it's a machine learning model, it can fire up Jupyter, or if it's an API call, it'll actually call the API or if it's a data set, you can actually do that. So it's super important that it's also part of the development cycle. You know, you've got all these tools basically to build the thing, but lots of times you see, you know, you, you have to go onto a separate piece of infrastructure with it and it adds friction and that kind of stuff. So in, in an ideal world, the, the marketplace is really the publish. When you deploy the data product, it goes onto there you know, through CICD pipelines and you can actually then have users going and look, browsing it, but then actually seeing what, you know, execute the, the product themselves. Got it. So that, that's helpful to understand. And so when you talk about data products, right, the marketplace, is it, are these uh, self-contained or fully functional web apps, or it could be it's a it's a mix? Sometimes it's a it's an app that a non-data person can use, or it's sometimes it's a machine learning model that if you, if you are a data scientist, you can just search for okay, I'm looking for an ML model to to model churn, for example. So what does what does it include, and and also is this something that is internal to the company, or can it also be made 
external, meaning a, a group of companies or a group of practitioners across a range of companies can come to a, a central location and, and search for it. So how do you how do you see this playing out? Yes, that's a, that's a great, great question. Actually, actually, it's actually both. So um, in, if you take the first question first, it's, it's in, in the tool that we're building, it's everything. So you have a product which is effectively has a full kind of web page and then has a full set of artifacts that go with it. So like you say, your machine learning model. So, I could, um, so you've got a recommendation engine in there, for instance. So I can look at look at the data product. It will be a full deployment, probably a web app, you know, web services app from Flask or whatever it is, with the features, with the, the, um, the, the configuration code, with any policies, data quality rules, that kind of stuff. It's the complete package of that entire you know, deployment to actually be able to run. So, you know, obviously if it's getting ingesting data from from a feed or from, you know, your e-commerce system, it's got data quality rules written on it. That's entirely packaged up and, and served as, a, as a, an encapsulated component running, you know, as a, as a web server, maybe on Azure or AWS or Google or, or even internally. Um, that's that's what that's what the, the, the main part of the product is, the product the catalog is. But also what we do is we actually had, you know, everything is, is actually searchable in it. So it's not really just the data products. I can search for data sets. So if, if I've got a, you know, that machine learning algorithm and it's got a bunch of features and I want to reuse those in a, another another product, happy days. I can do search and I can say, oh, I want to reuse that, you know, those those, those 10 columns that, is, that, that have been used for that feature, for that, that model into another product, or I want to reuse the data source, or I want to reuse some of the configuration, or if I've got a product that's got a load of files in it, you know, if it's say maybe it's a deep learning model, it's got a load of images, and I want to reuse those. So I can actually find those in, in, in the catalog as well. In the, so it's really the, the idea is the, the, the entry point is the data products, but actually the, it does catalog everything. And we use like Elasticsearch and classic kind of, you know, the, the search um, tools for doing that. Right. Now you talked about data products. Now, what about data services? So when I say services, it could include maybe I just need a little bit of coaching or training. Maybe like maybe I need uh, somebody to come in for 15 hours next month. So have you thought about services as well, or is it purely for data products? So that's a very good question. So in terms of sort of people type services, I mean, what we, we focus on is more the kind of technical services, a service being like effectively a microservice or a you know, Kafka queue or something like that, or a way of transporting data from you know your your estate, external, internal um, uh, sources or to the products. But in terms of actually services themselves, like consultancy and all that kind of stuff, theoretically you could add that into the the the, the catalog that you're the marketplace. So I can do like you know another whole classification of people based products, which are you know um, you know I, I need some coaching on how to build a data contract, or I, you know um, I want to package up. This this product is should I do it three products or one product? Or should I put it all in one big one or one small one? That that type of stuff. So theoretically, you could you could actually add those kind of you know people services. Um, uh, and also just go back to your previous one around is it internal or external? I think from a from a, a holistic perspective, it doesn't really matter. But obviously, you know, internal for large organisations, it's it's that that's probably where probably the immediate value is. You can do it externally, but obviously you've got to get all your compliance and all that kind of stuff in 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 um, you know in in um, in a row type stuff, you know, so there's lots of companies like Snowflake and Databricks and stuff all doing sharing around, you know, that kind of thing. But from an internal perspective, you want to do your external, you have to do the compliance bit. But yeah, theoretically, it could be either internal or external. Got it. Self-serve products in this domain have been historically been difficult, like difficult to execute, difficult to you know succeed. And obviously, some products have done it really well. Now, when you build a, a data product marketplace like this, you know, are you leaning more on self-serve and also if so what what guardrails or what product discipline do you use to make sure that when somebody comes in they look for something 
they can actually use it like right then and there without going through like you know, eight weeks of setup. Yeah. So that's a, again, great question. So I guess the first thing, if you're building a marketplace and you're building it for users to actually uh, build new products, and you've got to target who, who, who you're targeting fundamentally. So obviously you're talking data scientists, it's going to be a very different audience than maybe data analysts or, or technical business analysts or, you know, or even technical business people. So you've got to be, you know, you've got to be quite careful around who you target. Secondly, you've got to decide what does self-serve actually mean? Because in most cases I've seen, self-serve means that there's that there's some sort of central team who creates a load of assets for you, fundamentally, some data sets or some configuration of what have you. And it's all kind of nicely packaged and you've got nice DQ rules and all that sort of stuff. And then, and then the self-serve bit is really people building from, from there. So again, if you're if you're going to go that route, then obviously that's a quite a, a much lower overhead of actually building or de- deploying something than if you're going to truly self-service. I mean, true, truly self-service in my mind is a data science can go out onto an external website, download some data, have a, have a play with it, prototype it, look at the outliers, and kind of decide if they want to use it, and then onboard it with a control fashion, and then start building and deploy it all with no central teams, you know, or no no teams that actually do that. Now, obviously. That's the kind of nirvana um, that everyone's going to get. To. But actually, there's a lot of stuff you need to put in place around that. You know, it's, it's right. not that's not for the faint-hearted. I mean, it's doable, but it is it takes quite a serious amount of investment. So, um, and, you know, and if you're coaching for different types of users, you've got different user journeys. So, for instance, an analyst won't be looking at Jupyter notebooks. You know, a data science won't want to do a necessary data scientist won't want to do kind of a drag and drop type. You know. Um, piece they actually want to go to Python R or whatever you know so <clears throat> the data engineers will typically want to use Scala or, and also you know cool, tools like DBT and and stuff like that as well so um, it really depends on you know how you how you do that and the way we do it we have this thing called application templates and we've also got different user journeys for you know the analysts so for instance we've got a nice you know very simple you know pipelining tool for doing very simple tasks because a lot of things a lot of times you know you're building a metric or you're doing some analysis you don't want to have complex you know complex stuff you want to be able to do something get on there very quickly write, write a little pipeline you know look at look at the results do some nice visualizations and then publish it that's quite a very simple piece or then sometimes you want to do it a full blown monte carlo simulation which has a very different set of things so you so the way we do it is we actually cater for both we have a user journey for the analysts and the kind of the more the simpler end of the spectrum but we also have this ability to go into code add docker containers all that type of stuff to actually be able to you know use spark and and and, and more sophisticated kind of tools as well but again there's a lot of investment in terms of those engineering and you need to understand each of the user journeys very very well because you you, know, you right. can't really you can't really cross over them because that doesn't really work you know Right. So when it comes to a marketplace like Airbnb, for example, I go in, I type what I want, and then I pay money. So there's a transaction involved with the the dollar cost associated. Now, in this case, how does that manifest itself? So somebody searches, they got something useful out of it. And on the other end, somebody had to put in time and effort to create it. So how do you, so is this is this money transfer? Is this effort? Like, how do you measure that, uh, the transactional part of it? Again, I guess it's, we start with, if we're talking about internal versus external, you know, obviously if it's, if it's external, then you've got to treat it like a, you know, as if you were, you were deploying a, a SaaS product to the marketplace anyway. Right. You've got to come up with your commercial model, you've got to come up with licensing, you've got to you know, do credit cards, you've got to do payment methods, all that kind of stuff. That's no different if you're doing any kind of marketplace, whether you're doing Amazon right. Or, or, or what have you as well. So that's, I mean, it's not, Trivial, but it's it's quite a well-trodden path. So you you, you can do that. And I, I mean, I buy things on that, you know, photographs, and and um, you know, I even bought a few um, HTML templates and you know, React templates and stuff off digital website, digital marketplaces, and it all works all works very well. Now internally, it gets more interesting because obviously 
you know, it's it's no real kind of you're not playing credit cards to each other's department, right? So it got that, and that actually is not in my experience. And I've seen lots of cross charging models work with banks where they have lots of centralized infrastructure and stuff. That is not necessarily the, a technical problem, right? That that's more of a kind of a, a people problem, really, an organization operating model. Yeah, fundamentally, how do organizations basically um charge each other for work? You know, fundamentally, you know, the cross charging stuff. My mind, cross-charging work models don't really work that well. What you, you know, it's it's difficult because um, if you build shared infrastructure and you're doing it internally, unless that infrastructure can cater for every single client, what, what typically happens is the the, the the each each department has to wait for it, and, they, and sometimes they get a bit annoyed and a bit frustrated as they end up building it themselves, or you know, or you need something from the top to say, look, this is how we're going to do it, and here's centrally funding, a bit like your 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 kind of you know, you're buying your Amazon. So everyone uses Amazon. Obviously, there's a very sophisticated cost model around there. Everyone puts a puts a um, some money into the car into the into the pile, or it's just funded centrally, and you know they don't have to worry about. It. So this is the infrastructure. Just use it as much as, or, or little, little as, you, as possible. But again, it, it, that's a more of a it's a, almost like a commercial you know, operating model discussion rather than a technical technical piece. Obviously, yeah. No, that that's actually really interesting to understand, uh, and also. Marketplaces are fascinating, so that's why I'm diving a little bit deeper here. So, one last question: Now, when when you sell physical goods, it's um, you know, let's say you are you are on Etsy, right? You're selling like independent like carpets or or curtains, right? So there's you, somebody pays you, you ship it, you're done. But when it comes to digital goods, there's a chance that somebody downloads your digital good and then uploads it as their own. And then they start selling it. It happens a lot on, on Amazon. Ebooks, a huge problem. Udemy, huge problem. So in an, in an ideal way for data products, uh, how do you approach this problem? Like, what, do you, what can you even do? Let's say it's an external facing. Like internal, you can manage it. Let's say it's an open marketplace, external. Somebody can download it, upload it as their own and start making money, start charging, right? So how, how can you address this problem in yeah. theory again again it depends on the kind of products you're selling if, if it's a data set and i download it then yeah that that's right i mean there's digital fingerprinting and that kind of stuff you but it does get it gets a bit very tricky if you're if you're buying a model and you're buying a model to use then you can obviously black box that you know gpt does this for instance you know i can say i, I run the model on the platform on the marketplace platform itself and you know and i basically put i've set all the features up i do the hyper parameter tuning and i can actually execute it and then i get the results so that's that's obviously one way of actually stopping that, right? I mean, obviously that does give a lot of limitations to the people using the model, you know. And in, uh, um, but you can you can do that if it's, a, if it's a dashboard, then you've got data sources that hooks into it. it's kind of it could be you know a closed dashboard. You can't actually edit it, that sort of stuff. So there there are ways of doing that, but the, the data set is probably the most problematic on that. Um, uh, and you know, it's not something I've I've been looking at too, you know, because mainly, mainly I, the my my um, customer base is more to look at internal. So I've not done a lot on the actual external around digital rights management, around data and stuff like that. But there are there are things you can do to actually uh, try and limit that. Right, right. Yeah, I think it's it's an interesting topic because with every new form of digital goods that 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 comes into picture. Uh, in the photographs, we figured out how hey, you can add a, add a fingerprint. Uh, many there are many people, many solutions who can help prevent like uh, just downloading a photograph, uploading it as your own. But there are so many other forms of digital goods and data products that are very new. Photographs have been around for a very long time. 
data product is pretty new, right? Like our machine learning products, AI products. So it's it's interesting to see how uh, people will figure out a solution for that. All right. Um, I have one question before we go to the rapid fire, and that's about data mesh. Now, it's, it's obviously it's, a, it's, it's an important topic. And as, as we go towards a, a more decentralized architecture and microservices, they've played a big role in the last decade. So to start off, can you explain what data mesh is and also how can a, a company of reasonable size, maybe 500 to 1,000 people, how can they use data mesh to their benefit? Sure, sure. So it's interesting. There's kind of there's sort of two sort of flavors of data mesh fundamentally. And the thing about the data mesh is what what it originally was there to solve was the kind of centralized platform, the architecture failure modes of data lakes and data warehouses. You know, it's, it's well documented in the in the um, collateral. And, and the idea is that really you boil it all all down to you know the, the this core kind of what it's, the problem is trying to solve is really it's trying to stop centralized teams who don't really know or don't, potentially don't know the or understand the business process or the business around the, the analytics to actually building the analytics themselves. So what it's trying to do is actually get the analytics or the pipeline. So if I've got a cross-business pipeline and it goes across five departments, you know, I get the people in the department who own the data to build their piece of the puzzle fundamentally. That's that's really what it's there to do. And, and it has a way of basically allowing you to, you know, the, those departments to talk to each other and they call them data as a product, which they really mean a data component, you know, and they talk about, you know, sort of API calls and, you know, very much that kind of microservices kind of paradigm. So that, and that's really what the mesh, mesh is there to do, is trying to stop the, um, you know, the, the ask going through the central team to build, build the entire thing. I mean, that's, again, super, super simplified, but that's fundamentally what it's there to do. So, you know, if you were to, um, you know, if you had that kind of problem, obviously small companies don't have that problem so much because it's normally one team and they can build their own, you know, they build, they can, they sit next to each other. Well, they used to sit next to each other, they sit next to each other virtually now. Um, and, you know, they can talk to you and say, what does this, what does this data mean? What does this attribute mean? What's, you know, okay, hey, Bill, can you just build this for me? Or Francis, can you just, you know, do this piece for me? And, you know, that, that doesn't happen. So, but in larger organizations, especially as you certainly go up a scale, if you've got enough, you know, a finance team versus marketing versus sales and they're not, you know, in a large 1,000 plus type organization, you know, they are, they don't talk to each other every day. So, and they're all building kind of buildings by building silo kind of pieces. So, so if I go back to kind of the two flavors of the mesh, there's kind of the mesh dot one dot zero, which is really about building, you know, data products as data sets. And that's what most people start with doing. They start building, rather than building kind of centralized warehousing style schemas, they build kind of these independent data sets which are associated with each of the, the departmental teams. I mean, there's there's a discussion around domains, and but let's keep it simple, that the departmental teams. Um, and then they expose those to the analytics teams and the businesses. And, you know, assume you've got data scientists in marketing and you know, uh, BI people in reporting, that type of stuff. So that's kind of the first bit. But the, kind of if you take that forward to the kind of the, the conclusion, you, what you end up with actually building their own encapsulated, not just data, but analytics themselves, you know, fundamentally. So um, the mesh talks about, you know, operation versus analytical planes. I mean, I'm, I'm not a big fan of that. I think it's all, if, if, if it's if it's a, used in your business day-to-day, it's, it's, it's operational. So it's a machine learning algorithm or it's a dashboard or whatever, or a web microservice that services your um, e-commerce system. They're all kind of operational. So, you know, it's more about, you know, segmenting stuff down and and encapsulating it into those kind of micro deliveries for each of those each of those teams so it does it require quite a, a mindset mindset shift also the mesh there's, there's a lot of organizational kind of cultural kind of aspects of it you know people who are much more clear ownership of data and ownership of the analytics themselves rather than just throwing them over the team saying you know it's, it's, your, it's your requirement you build it and if it, if it breaks i'm going to come and <laughs> be angry with you 
that's not the idea. The idea is that, you know, if I need to go to a particular department, say like sales, and I want to build a sales metric, I work with the sales team, you know, and the sales team actually built, or someone in the, in the analytics person in the sales team actually builds that. So there's definitely some organizational constructs that need that need to go into that. But And ideally, you know, if you look at the people who have, who have um, you know, there's the Landos and the, you know, um, DPD Media who've, you know, actually been quite long on this journey. They're getting quite sophisticated around it. They're actually building these kind of, you know, these discrete analytic kind of components like that. But it does take a bit of a journey. Um, you can't buy a data mesh today. So, you know, um, there's more disagreements whether you should be able to or not, but fundamentally, so you've got to build it, you know, largely. So that, that obviously takes time and investment to be able to do that. Right. With that, we are at the rapid fire round. I'll ask a series of questions and I uh, would love to hear your answers. You ready? Yep, indeed. Join us. All right. All right. Question number one. What's your favorite book? Um, so from a, uh, a technical perspective or from a more kind of um, uh, non-recreational perspective, my favorite book is called Crossing the Chasm, which is a really good way of, you know, if you're trying to do disruption or trying to do change inside, technical change inside organizations, that's, that really does lay out kind of the whole kind of culture and psychology around it. Now, Crossing the Chasm is one of my favorite books as well. Like, it's really good, as you said, just it lays out what it takes to build products and get get acceptance basically so all right next question what tool do you end up using the most for your data related work this is going to be a complete cop out because it really depends on the customer so <laughs> i'm afraid <laughs> and it really it could be i mean probably the, the azure stack is probably my is, is 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 the data stack there so i did a lot of you know um work around adf and databricks probably is up there i suspect you know every, every client I, I work with has has databricks you know snowflakes up there but also use BigQuery and i use um redshift and you know it, it and obviously jupiter python i mean it's a it's, it's quite a range because we do a lot of different works on the on the customer so you know um, actually and if i'm being brutally honest with my own business it's probably excel <laughs> <laughs> you know it's funny the the frequency with which I hear like simple like Excel or PowerPoint like I end up, or calendar I end up spending most of my time in this it would be it's a little like oh, yeah of course we think about it we spend a lot of time in these yeah. tools uh, so yeah all right next question what has been the biggest development in AI over the last three years so that's a super interesting one I think you know one of the things that I you know I've spoken a lot to a lot of data scientists and they say basically the models everyone knows the models. You know, fundamentally, the models aren't really a USP anymore. But what is, is either data or your ability to, to, to build and train large models for costs. So in my mind, the biggest advancement has really been pre-trained models like GPT. You know, fundamentally, people investing, you know, millions of dollars and, you know, trillions of features, that type of stuff. So actually, to be able to actually, you know, you've got GANs, you've got NLP, you know, you've got loads of different use cases. For me, that I think that's really been the... One I've seen, obviously, there are robotics and there are other ones as well. But that, for me, is really the, the, the biggest advancement in mainstream AI. Right. You must have interviewed many, many data practitioners. So what's the common mistake um, the early stage data practitioners make? I think trying to go to the cool stuff really quickly. So, you know, I want to learn machine learning. <laughs> I want to use deep learning. I want to go into kind of, you know, a really good graph algorithm. I want to use it's like, no, stop. Two things. First, understand the basics in data. You know, fundamentally understand basic statistics. You know, basic set theory for SQL. You know, just just the you know understand how to manipulate data first of all. And secondly, business. Get to understand how to talk to business people. You know, absolutely. Is you know 
we can't all do Kaggle for the rest of our lives. Much as I love Kaggle, but it's not really you can't, you can't base <laughs> right. a career on just doing Kaggle. Well, some people can, but not for, not for most people. So, understand how to break a business problem down and how to communicate with the business. So, those are those are the two things I, I see people almost bypassing. It's like you know to get to I want to do a, I want to do aggression analysis on this. I want to do you know a, a neural network for that. It's like you've got to start the basics in my mind. Right. What's your favorite interview question to ask? Um, well, my favorite interview question is basically I give them a business problem and, and, and you know, how do you solve it? Yeah, almost that open-ended. So I've got this problem and I, and I talk through a particular use case and I say, right, tell me how you solve it. And it depends who I'm talking to. Obviously, if it's a data scientist, it's the, you know, I talk much more around kind of the analytics and the models. If it's a data engineer, it's much more around data structures and kind of, you know, that sort of thing. If it's a data analyst, it's much more around the business questions and kind of how you, you know, how you actually can get the value and that sort of stuff. So, yeah, that, that, that's my, you know, I, I don't do lot, very hard technical interviews because I just don't think you, you get a much better sense of someone if you ask them kind of non, you know, sort of problem solving questions. Because in my mind, you can teach a person generally technical skills. You, teaching them problem solving skills is actually a lot more difficult. That's that's the first thing I I, I, I I get to ask. Right. All right. Final question. What's your number one advice to practitioners who are building data products from scratch? So I would even take out the word data, product market fit. Basically, work out what problem you're solving. Work out if it's solving the right problem. Work out if someone's willing to use it slash buy it. Super simple. You know, I've seen so many times where people have built either you know SaaS products or um, internal products which don't have either don't solve the problem or don't or get or put high friction in there or they're not used or you know that that's the biggest problem fundamentally you know it's better to do something very small and test quickly with the, with with your customer whoever that's internal or external first before you really you know, invest a lot of time and energy that, that that would be my advice. You know, I love what you said about like remove data. Like technically, like having you spent your life in data, and your first, your first uh, reaction was remove data and see if you're actually solving a problem. And also another variant of this that I I, I usually discuss is if you can do it without using machine learning, yes, do it. Yes. Because it, it doesn't matter to your customer, right? The customer cares about solving a business problem and they really don't care if it's you know if it's like machine learning power next generation optimized no they're like it's like remove all of that and just just in plain english can you solve the business problem so john this has been such a, a it's been such a wonderful conversation I really enjoyed the insights and uh, and also i think end of the day how do you talk to customers how do you identify problems and how do you solve it data products ml it's just tools to solve problems right so thanks again for sharing your insights no problem at all. Thank you for having me on the podcast. Um, yeah, it's been, been super, super great. So thank you. What an amazing discussion on data. Uh, we covered data product pyramid, data product marketplace, data mesh, and how business teams should communicate with data teams. Thanks to John for coming on to the show. You can visit infinitemachinelearning.com to subscribe to the podcast. Thanks again for tuning in. I'll see you soon with another amazing episode.